the subtitle for the book of Matthew, not only is it a gospel, but it's very uh, Jewish focused. It's about prophetic power. It's about all these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew being the book, the gospel that quotes the Old Testament more than any other uh, gospel. It's one of those books that's very logical. We just came out of a section from chapter five to chapter seven called the Beatitudes, where it's completely red. For three chapters, the color of the words is red, right? It's all Jesus talking. And he spoke with authority and with power. And so we pick it up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter seven, verse 28, which is just two verses before the beginning of chapter eight there. It says in Matthew chapter seven, verses 28 and 29, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so as we approach your word, Father, I ask that you would just speak to us with, with authority, with power, Lord. We know that your word is, is your word given to us. Uh, the words from this book are your spoken words, whether they're written in red or, or written in black, every single word is the spoken, inspired word to us. Yes, written by men of old, but yet written for us today. Just as relevant as when it was written, Lord. And so as we approach this amazing section of this gospel, I ask that you would speak to us with your power, with your authority, that, that you would change our lives so that we wouldn't be the same as when we entered in tonight, that, that our lives would be transformed through the reading and application of your word. And just as you changed people's lives in the time when you were here on the earth, we ask that you would change ours as well. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen and amen. And so you see at the very end of, of chapter seven there, the authority of Jesus Christ. And this astonished the people that were up there on the mountain with him, as he's speaking these words, this, this wasn't quotations from some person or some rabbi or, or some teacher or some scribe, as it says here. This is the authoritative word of God being spoken by God incarnate there sitting among them. And you remember when we started chapter five, it was just the apostles that were there, just those 12 men uh, sitting around Jesus. But then when you read chapter eight, verse one, at the end of the Beatitudes, at the end of this longest of Jesus' sermons, you find out that this has grown. It, it's no longer just 12 people up there. Now it is a multitude. There's lots of people. And, and however long it took for Jesus to give this these mini sermonettes or this massive sermon combined, however long that took, it slowly grew and there was more and more people People went and got other people and they gathered on the top of this hill on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter eight, verse one, we read this. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. No, no longer just those 12 guys, no longer just those 12 apostles, but now a multitude of people are following Jesus. And they're hanging on his every word. Why? Because of the authority that he had. And so now starting in chapter eight, going to the rest of the book, we're going to see his authority being shown in his power. He's going to perform miracles now. In fact, this is the first time we see in the book of Matthew that miracles are now going to be performed by Jesus Christ. It's no longer just his spoken word, but he's going to prove his authority by his power, right? Have, have you ever met someone with, that was just all talk? Uh, they're, they're, they're just a, just a, a hot air balloon, right? Uh, aren't you glad that God backs up what he says? He keeps his promises, right? He, he's a faithful God, the same yesterday, today, and forever in Jesus Christ, being God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, he backs up. And not only does he show his power through his miracles, but he shows his power through his very actions. 
In fact, the very first miracle that we see in the book of Matthew, this isn't the very first miracle that he does. That's in uh, the book of Luke. Uh, But in terms of the book of Matthew, the very first miracle that Jesus does is an impossible miracle. Something that had never been seen done in the nation of Israel ever. Okay, Now, it had been done to other people outside side of Israel, but never to an Israelite person. Look at what it says there in verse 2. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you've probably heard many sermons about leprosy. You've probably heard many sermons about what it means to be a leper. It was one of those things that would happen to a person and it would devastate their lives because not only were they given this incurable disease, but they had to live outside of society. And every time they came within a certain distance of any human being, they would have to cry out, unclean, right? Because this disease was communicable. If you would touch this person, you had a chance of getting this leprosy. And leprosy, of course, you all know this, is one of those debilitating diseases that was considered not only chronic, but also something that would be with you for the rest of your life. It was incurable. It was so devastating that the Bible compares it to sin in the way that it completely numbs the extremities of the body. Where when you got it, it would literally kill the filling in your fingers and in your toes and in your extremities like your nose or your ears. Any of the parts that were on the outer edges of your body and would slowly shrink in so much so that if you were to put your hand or part of your body on a hot fire or something that was sharp you couldn't feel it you couldn't feel the pain and a lot of these lepers would have missing fingers missing toes the picture here is of something that literally is debilitating and takes away your sense of touch so, so much so that even on uh, your deathbed, you wouldn't even be able to feel the pain of the death that was coming. It was so horrendous. And of course, if you read the book of Leviticus, if you read the book of Numbers, there, there's literally chapter after chapter of what it means to be a leper. If you were to find a single spot, you had to go to the priest and you had to have it looked at. And then they had to wait seven days and they'd look at it again. If it was below the certain layer of the skin, then they would set you aside. And then you'd have to go again and you have to get it checked. And in terms of the history of the Jews, there had never been a leper among the Jewish people that had ever been healed of leprosy. In fact, you look at the whole entire Old Testament, except for Miriam, which was a a specific case. It was her hand that was healed or got leprosy and she put it in and, and then she took it out and it was completely healed again after she had rebelled against Moses. But in, except for that one specific case, no Jewish person had ever been healed of leprosy, except for one person that was outside of the Jewish nation. In fact, there's an amazing story if you look at the, the Elisha and his life, there, there was a certain guy by the name of Naaman. He was a Syrian. He wasn't even Jewish. He was the captain of the enemy army to the north, the Syrians that would come down and, and attack the Jewish people. And this guy was sent, this guy by the name of Naaman. And it was only him out of all the people that had leprosy during the time of Elisha that was healed. In fact, if you read Luke chapter 4, verse 27... It says this, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Do you you understand not only how powerful God is, 
but how specific God is as well. Why did he choose that one person to be healed? Because he came to Elisha. In fact, if you look at the story of Naaman, the leper, a warrior, he was this ferocious warrior because he couldn't feel. He couldn't feel the pain. And so because of this, he was one of these feared guys having leprosy himself, but yet at the same time not being able to feel the love and touch of even his wife or his children or his, of his servant, who was the one that recommended that he go to Elisha in the first place. And so because of this, not only is this prophetic power, but this is one of the aspects of the Messiah that had to be shown proven, shown true, that he could heal leprosy. In fact, not only does he heal leprosy here, but one of the most famous stories of healing is what is called the, the healing of the 10 lepers, right? Look at what it says here. This is just one person, by the way. Verse three of chapter eight, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing be cleansed. Now you notice something right away. This is a communicable disease by touch. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Touches him. Wow. To, to show the power of the authority of who he is, proving that he is the Messiah, healing a Jewish person of their leprosy. Look, look at what it continues to say. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the... And by the way, this is the first time this priest would have ever seen someone being cleansed of leprosy because it never happened in Israel before. And, and for the first time, now they have to open up these old scrolls, the book of Leviticus. What do we have to do? Because there's someone cleansed of leprosy, right? It, you see the amazing way that the Messiah is proving himself just by the miracle, the very first miracle that's listed in the book of Matthew as leprosy, this impossible disease to be healed. Because what has to happen now? It's not just a skin disease. What has to happen? Your nerves have to regrow. Your skin has to regrow. Every single part of the taking away that the leprosy has done to your body God is bringing back. Isn't that amazing? That, that now this person who had leprosy can now feel and touch again. To regrow those parts of the body that, that the priest or the doctors of the day had no idea that was missing. And God did. And he brings it all back. In fact, if you've ever had a, whether it's a facial surgery or, or finger surgery, what, one of the hardest parts of that surgery is reattaching the nerves, right? Because once a nerve is severed, what happens to the rest of the nerve? It dies. It can't feel again. It, it, it's completely separated from the rest of the nervous system. And so what has to happen? That nerve has to regrow. And this is what Jesus does in an amazing way. He tells him to go to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This priest now having to go to the book of Leviticus and, you know, educate himself about what it means to, for a leper to be healed. Wow, this is an amazing thing. And the Messiah, the proof of who Jesus is. But by the way, the verse that we just read from the book of Luke, that was what Jesus told in his sermon to the people that he grew up with in Nazareth. That, that, that's when he had, he had told everybody, this is who I am standing here in your midst. And he puts that scroll down. And what did they want to do to him, by the way? They wanted to push him off a cliff. They wanted to push him off a cliff. And this is when he leaves. He goes to the northern area of Galilee there. 
one of the powerful prophecies that Jesus had to fulfill was the healing of impossible miracles. Healing of impossible diseases. Healing of things that couldn't be healed at the time when Jesus is there on the earth. In fact, if you were to go around the world, you would, you would see that even today, leprosy is one of those incurable diseases. If, if it's not caught early, it is completely incurable, even today. Even today. If you read chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and, and chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, you're going to find out that just for the Beatitudes, there, there was teaching after teaching, and now there's application, miracle, application after application. Je Jesus is going from place to place, healing people, proving who he is. Verse 5 there, it continues on, that when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a, a centurion came to him and pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, uh, dreadfully tormented. Okay, now th this guy here, and this is amazing. What we see here is this, again, is not a Jew. This is a Roman. Do you guys know what a centurion is? I'm sure you've heard this before. What does the word cent mean? Yeah, a hundred. There's a hundred pennies, a hundred cents in a dollar. A centurion was a Roman officer who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. He had soldiers underneath him. We're going to see what it means in terms of authority. But this servant that he had was paralyzed. Again, an aspect of the body where you had lost your feeling, where, where, where you had lost a part of your body where you weren't even able to move it. The, the nerves had been damaged. Again, similar to leprosy. Uh, again, something that was incurable, uh, something that had to be done inside the body, not just something on the outside, but something that had to be done on the inside of the body. And what does Jesus do? Not, not only does he heal the person, but he does this amazing miracle from a distance. Again, not with touch like the previous uh, miracle, but now with authority just by speaking it. Look at what it says there. And Jesus said to him, I will come heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Why does the Roman say this to Jesus, that, that I'm unworthy? A Roman was considered a Gentile. They, they were non-Jewish. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was considered a Gentile. Because of this, uh, a Jew was not allowed to go into a Gentile home. Uh, they would be unclean for a certain amount of time. They would have to go through the purification services and, and purify themselves going into a Gentile home. Uh, home and so the the centurion understanding the custom of uh, the Jews says don't even come to my home instead what should you do verse 9 for I also am a man under authority having soldiers under me and I say to this one go and he does and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it and when Jesus heard it he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not seen or found such great faith, not even in Israel. Wow. The authority of who Jesus is recognized by a non-Jewish person, recognized by a Gentile, recognized by a Roman Centurion. In fact, every single time Jesus says this phrase, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. It's always to people outside the faith, outside the Jewish faith. It's always to people that have greater faith than even the Jews from which Jesus Christ himself lived. Isn't that amazing? 
who was the Messiah sent for? Originally for the Jews, right? But we see here that not only was he for the Jews, but he was for the Gentiles as well. And they even had greater faith than the Jews for which he was sent. Isn't that amazing? It's what the Roman centurion understood was what we've been learning about in chapters 5 through 7, authority. What does it mean to have authority? Authority isn't just a formula. Uh, authority isn't just a title or, or something like that. It, uh, authority actually comes from the acting out of the power behind the authority, right? It, it, it's just having that presence of authority, knowing that what you say will be done by whomever you tell it to. In fact, this is what he says in verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. These are Gentiles from all over the world. And they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What happened when the church was established? It, it started with the Jews, but eventually where did it go to? Just as Jesus had told them to do, go into the uttermost parts of the world baptizing and preaching and telling them about who I am, right? And, and so the Gentile church, all these people from the east and to the west, all over the world coming, and now, just like us, people without a single drop of Jewish blood, do you get to go to heaven because of Jesus Christ? And this is exactly what it says there, in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, those that are Jews, will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not who you were born as. It's not your nationality. It's not your skin color. It's not your language. It's not what nation you were born under. It's who you believe, including the Jews, by the way, including the children of God, including those that, that called themselves sons of Abraham, who put their faith and their salvation in a person rather than the Messiah, rather than God. And so because of that, this illustration that Jesus is saying is one of those poignant illustrations of what it means to actually know who you serve. And the Roman centurion understood this, by the way. Look at what it happens there in verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, it's interesting. We're going to see this as we walk through all these amazing miracles. For one thing, they're all varied. That, they're not just certain disease or a, a certain way of doing things, okay? This isn't a formula that Jesus does. What does he do the first time? He touches the person. What does he do for the second miracle? He speaks, right? In every single case, these miracles are going to be done in surprising ways, in varying ways, in different ways. There is no formula with how Jesus heals. And it's the same thing today, by the way. You know that, right? And the reason why is because if there's a formula, if there's a certain prayer or a certain way to heal someone, you know what we're going to do? We're going to try and do it ourselves. Oh, I have to do it this way. I have to do this thing that I want done a certain way. But what does Jesus prove in these chapters and in these verses? It's always him. It's not the formula. It's not even the person that's being healed. It's not the nationality of the person that's being healed. It's not the gender of the person being healed. It's not the circumstances of the person being healed. In every single case, it always depends upon the one who is doing the healing. Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is behind the power, the authority of the healing, will it be? This is amazing. I, I just love how the book of Matthew describes 
each and every single one of these prophetic powers being uh, fulfilled. You see, all these signs of prophecy had to be fulfilled in order to show that Jesus was the Messiah. He had to heal people. He had to heal lepers. He had to heal the blind. He had to heal the lame. He had to heal the deaf. He had, he had to heal all these specific diseases. And in the book of Matthew, being a Jew himself, understanding the prophecies of old, knowing that these had to be healed, he shows these very clearly. In fact, the next one, in verse 14, gets very personal. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, or in some of your translations, mother-in-law. So if Peter had a mother-in-law, what does that mean? What does that mean? He was married, okay? He was married, okay? That decimates certain denominations, right? Saying that Peter was the first of the popes, right? Well, what does it mean? If Peter was married, he had a mother-in-law, a mother-in-law who was sick, by the way, a, a, a house where Jesus enters into and, and sees Peter's mother-in-law there sick with a fever. Okay, now whether this was something to death or something like that, something chronic or something like that, we don't really know. This could have just been a regular fever. Might have gone away on its own. But what does Jesus do even for a fever? E even for a, a headache? What does he do? He heals it. That, that, that's incomprehensible, incomparable compared to leprosy or, or paralysis, right? It, it, it's a fever. For us today, it would be just pop a couple of Tylenol, Advil, aspirin, whatever it is, right? But what is Jesus showing here? That even whether it's the biggest, most incurable disease, even down to something that we today wouldn't think of in terms of something that would be able to be easily healed, what does Jesus do? Is any disease, does God want? to reach out and touch that person. Even Peter's mother-in-law, right? And her fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. I, I have a map here and, and this is one of those, I, I showed this about a month ago. Thank, thank God we have amazing sound guys in the back that have the ability to be able to shrink in and make sure that you can actually read the words a little bit here. But this is the main area where Jesus did his ministry. In fact, every single one of these chapters, all the way up until Jesus returns to Jerusalem, there at the last part of his life, most of his ministry is in the Sea of Galilee region. It's in the north, okay? This is at least three days journey from Jerusalem, if not longer. This is the northern area of Israel called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is the region where Peter and John and Andrew and James uh, had their career in terms of fishing. Uh, this is where Jesus got most of his disciples. Uh, this is where most of the miracles and teachings took place around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you look, just to, just to like skim over the various things that were done here, this is a massive area where Jesus lived and worked and healed people. In fact, the Mount of Beatitudes is in that northern uh, region there on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, which is where Peter's house was, this is on also on the northern area. The very next story that we're going to be reading where they cross the Sea of Galilee and go to Gergesa. That's just right on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. All these areas where Jesus is teaching and healing, it's all in this region, what was called the Sea of Galilee. If you ever have the chance to go there, it's a beautiful area. It's one of those places where the, now it's, there are lots of resorts and, and different things that happen around the Sea of Galilee. But to imagine what Jesus saw, the, those hills and those towns, those places that were reliant upon the Sea of Galilee for their income, for their food, and Jesus is ministering to these people, including 
this personal aspect of healing a fever of Peter's mother-in-law. It continues on there, verse 16, And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. We're going to see this in greater detail later on. But how many words does Jesus have to speak in order to cast out the demons? What does it say? A. A word. Not this chant or this mantra or, or this long in terms of trying to describe the demon or chase it away with a certain amount of text or something like that. A whole bunch of scriptures or a whole bunch of these religious saying no. One word and the demons flee. One word, a word, and they're gone. We're going to see what that word is in just a little bit, by the way. And, and again, just like the healing, it's always the power of the one who is saying the word. It's always the power of the one who is saying the word. And it always comes down to who is Jesus. If he is God incarnate, Messiah, Emmanuel, God on the earth, he is showing his power and his authority by casting out these demons. And by the way, this is happening at Peter's house too, by the way. Okay? Right outside Peter's house, all these people that are demon-possessed, Jesus says one word. What does it say there, verse 17? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Did this have to take place? The leprosy being healed, the paralysis being healed, the fevers being healed, the demon-possessed being healed. Did this have to take place to show who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah? Yes. In fact, if you read that whole section there where Matthew, he quotes just two of, the, uh, two of the phrases there. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6, we actually read the whole context of these verses. He is despised and rejected by men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all this is such a powerful section that jesus is fleshing out by proving who he is fulfilling prophecy in their, in their very midst, by the way, showing them that I meet the requirements for the Messiah. Now, it's amazing because just by going through the book of Isaiah, and especially Isaiah 53, and we were in the book of Isaiah about two years ago, but the word that's repeated the most in this section is a three-letter word by the name of our. O-U-R, right? Our. It, it, it was our sins. It was our transgression. It was our infirmities. All, all the things that we have just by being sinful people who bore those things. Jesus Christ. And the trump card, by the way, the, the ultimate thing that Jesus took from it was, wasn't just the physical infirmities. But the spiritual infirmity, the iniquity, the sin, the transgression, the one who was without sin bore our sin 
in his body on the tree so that I might be called righteous. It was that great exchange. My, my sins for his righteousness, for my sins. It's truly uh, amazing, and he's proving it out by touching people, by speaking, by healing people. Verse 18, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him saying, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so uh, you, you see, uh, and just by the picture that we saw earlier, the Sea of Galilee, the easiest way to go uh, from one side of the Sea of Galilee to another, just like with any lake or any ocean, it's the, a straight line, right? Rather than going around, Jesus having fishermen with boats, he was able to get on a boat and they were able to go across the sea. It was a lot quicker. It was a lot easier for them to go across. And so when they cross the sea, not only is there people wanting to be healed, but now there's people that wanting to be his apostles or his followers or his disciples. There was a certain uh, privilege to be called an apostle. There, there was a certain privilege of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this person, by the way, this word teacher that he says here is the word rabbi. I will follow you wherever you go. I'll, I'll go with you wherever you want me to go. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, by the way, Jesus' career before he started his ministry at the age of 30, what did he used to do? He was a carpenter. What do carpenters build? Houses, right? And amongst other things, right? But it's amazing how that this carpenter who had the ability to build houses, who had even the, the know-with-all, the knowledge to be able to, to build house, the creator of the entire universe who could call into existence anything, what does he do? He doesn't even own a house. He doesn't own property. And for three years, what does he do? He goes throughout the Sea of Galilee region. He walks all over uh, the nation of Israel teaching preaching and showing that he is the Messiah, Emmanuel, God incarnate, walking among them. And the apostles, the disciples, they too had the same living uh, experience as well. Now, of course, there's always perks to being next to Jesus. There was food and all those kind of things that would just automatically show up. It was amazing. There was tons of leftovers, of course. I bet that was delicious food. But do you understand what he's saying to this wannabe apostle? This isn't for everyone. This is a high calling. Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, you may feel like this is harsh. In fact, both of these sound very harsh, right? I, I can't even go and bury my dead dad, right? I can't even have a funeral. You have to understand the culture or the, the time period. This isn't just for a day, okay? This isn't just for a couple of days. No, this would have been for a year. You see, the morning time for a dad, especially if you were the oldest son, wasn't just the funeral and do a couple of things, shake people's hands and say some things over your dad or whatever. No, this was a long, drawn-out process. And so what Jesus is saying, what is your priority? Just like with Peter, he had to leave his family. He had to leave where he was staying. And even though, yes, they, they visited, but it wasn't a permanent thing. He followed Jesus. And the same is true for us today. What are we supposed to do when we follow Jesus? We're supposed to bear the cross, right? And follow after him. The, the perfect example, I, I, I love this, is the next illustration or the next part that we read here, verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples 
followed him. This is interesting because the previous two, these were guys that said they wanted to follow Jesus, but their feet didn't obey what they were saying. It's so easy to say, I want to follow Jesus, but your feet are doing something else. Your hands are doing something else. Your thoughts are going somewhere else. It's a status, if you will. You, again, you want the title without the responsibility. You want the privilege without the work. But what do the apostles do? What do the Peter, James, and John, all these 12 apostles, what do they do? They actually get on the boat, by the way. They actually follow Jesus. Their feet go where their mouths were saying they would. Now, you've probably heard this story many times. There, there's many great sermons about this. But the understanding is just like the previous section. Again, this is context. Where is your devotion? Where's your heart? In the previous section, we learned that these people that, that had wanted to follow Jesus, they don't actually get on the boat. And we criticize the apostles. We say they got scared. We say they had, you know, no faith. We accuse them of certain things. But were they on the boat? Were they on the boat? Yes, they got on the boat. They followed Jesus wherever he went. They were on the boat. They had wholehearted devotion, by the way. Look at this. And, and again, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you've probably heard many stories about this where it could be like crystal clear, completely like a mirror. And then all of a sudden within an hour, even within a half an hour, a storm can come up just because the Sea of Galilee creates its own weather patterns. It creates its own currents, it creates its own weather in terms of storms and things that can happen because it's in this bowl shape surrounded by these heels. And because of this, storms are very common, okay? And, and Peter, James, and John, and, and, and Andrew, and all these other apostles that were fishermen, they understood this. They, they had been through storms. They, they had been on the lake in storms. Look at what it says there. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Who's the he? Jesus. Now, th th this is one of those stories, one of those, one of those real events that took place where not only do you see Jesus's power, uh, he had power over leprosy, he had power of paralysis, he had power over fever, he had power over demons, but this power that he's going to display is one of the most, in terms of power, showing who he is in terms of his godhood. Because this is creation. This is nature, if you will. This is a storm. This isn't a person. This isn't some disease that we even understand now that all you have to do is connect the nerves or something like that or give a shot as a, a, a cure or something like that. Something that we understand today. But this is, goes above and beyond that. Even the miracles of healing someone, what is happening on this lake is this massive tempest that is even bigger than the lake itself. Bigger than the boat. Bigger than the people on the boat. Something that a human being has no control over. And even these experienced fishermen are scared of. And where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Jesus, save us, we are perishing. Now, why do you think Jesus is asleep? Every single preacher has a different reason or a different theory. We, we don't know. But just imagine, literally, after our day after day, week after week of preaching and people coming to you and wanting you to be healed, did Jesus as, yes, God, yes, as Emmanuel, yes, as, as God here on earth, did he have a human body with human limitations? Did he need sleep? Yes, just like he needed to eat. 
just like he needed a drink, just, just like every single human limitation that he himself put upon his own body, he needed sleep, right? He needed to sleep. Now imagine you're on a boat and you're sleeping. What is that boat doing? It's rocking. Of course, most of us not used to be on a boat, but you get seasickness. But of course, Jesus and these apostles who were experienced on the Sea of Galilee, this rocking motion, what does it do? It put him to sleep, right? And of course, the disciples, they're scared. We again fault the apostles. We fault the disciples, but they knew who to go to. We can't fault them on that. Yes, they were scared, but who did they go to? They went to Jesus, the same one whom we're supposed to go to in, in the storms of life. But he said to them, why are you fearful, you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. John 1.1, 1, 1, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, being fulfilled in their midst, the Creator standing amongst them, causing the wind and the sea to calm down. You, you think these miracles of healing were amazing, seeing this mighty storm, lightning and thunder and wind and waves just vanishing. The creator of the entire universe able to calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee with a single word again. So the men marveled, saying, who can do this? that even the winds and the sea obey them. By, by the way, they saw the cleansing of the leper. They saw the cleansing of the demons. They, they saw the healing of the paralysis. They, they saw these other miracles. And, and what do they say about this miracle? There, is there power behind who Jesus is? The creator standing on the boat. The, the creator of the Sea of Galilee standing on the boat. The creator of the nation of Israel standing on the boat. Is he fulfilling powerful prophetic prophecy? Standing right in there, in their midst. We'll be able to hopefully finish. I, I, I told myself I'm going to get through more than a chapter this week. We'll see. Verse 28, and when he came to the other side to the Sea of Gersenes, and we saw that it's on the, would be on the eastern side there of the Sea of Galilee, starting up there in Capernaum where Peter lived and then going diagonally across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. By, by the way, this isn't even Israel. This is on the other side of the Jordan. And if you, you ever look at a map of Israel, even today, people are saying this, even today, river to the sea, you hear that. Even on the news, you hear that. Not by Israelites, but by Palestinians, by the way. Okay? And the river to the sea is the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Ocean. Okay? And it was always defined as the boundaries of Israel, okay? So the Sea of, or the Jordan River actually divides, comes into the Sea of Galilee, and then comes out of the Sea of Galilee. And if, if you line it up, literally it cuts it in half, the Sea of Galilee. And it's the border of the eastern edge of the nation of Israel. So even today, the, the Jordan River is the eastern edge of the Israelite nation. On the other side, you have the country of Jordan today, which is considered a, an ally of Israel, even though sometimes they aren't. But the Jordan nation on the eastern side of the Jordan uh, River, this is where Jesus is going, the, this Gurgenes, okay? So as we go through this, just keep that in mind. There met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is extremely important because who knew the authority of Jesus Christ? The demon, just by him standing there. They knew who he was. They knew he was Emmanuel, 
They knew he was the son of God. They knew he had the authority to cast them out and they're deathly afraid. And they're saying, why have you come before our appointed time of torment? Because they know where they are going. Do you understand that? How powerful Jesus Christ is, not just over physical ailments, but even over spiritual principalities and authorities and powers. Has Jesus ever given up one iota of his power? No. Even as a human being here on the earth, he has the authority and the power to cast out these uh, demons. Verse 30, now a good way off from there was a herd of swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of uh, uh, swine. Now you guys all know what swine are, right? What are swine? Pigs, exactly. But this was before pigs were cultivated and we consider them at least a clean animal nowadays. Back then, swine were like feral pigs, okay? They would be in herds and they would have some sort of a shepherd. We're going to find that out in just a little bit here. But they ate whatever they wanted to eat. Of course, pigs being omnivores, they, they would have eaten acorns. They would have eaten all different kinds of things that were out in wherever they were, including rotting meat, including things that weren't a kosher. And because of this, a pig is not considered a clean animal, at least not in the day of Jesus. Now, we talked about this earlier. He said a word. What is that word? We find it out in verse 32 here. Really short verse. Then he said to them, go. That's all Jesus has to say. Go. And what happens to those demons? They had to leave. It's not this huge section. It's not this big, long speech. It's not this religious saying. It's not this religious formula. What does Jesus say? Go. That's it. And what do the demons have to do? They have to leave in the name of Jesus. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. In other gospels, we find out that these were 2,000 or legion. This was actually a specific number of demons that came out of these two men, these men that were able to not only break chains, but also to were violent in how they acted toward other people living amongst the cemetery or amongst these graves. But what happens to the swine because they're inhabited by demons? What happens to them? They go crazy and they want to commit suicide, by the way. They literally jump off a cliff rather than having these demons inside of them. Now, this is important to understand because as we end this chapter, as we, we end this section, this is so important to understand in terms of what it means to be demon-possessed. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, what has to happen to the demons? They have to leave. They have to leave. They, 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 they both can't be in the same place. They both can't be in the same body. They, they, they both can't be in the same proximity. What did those demons want to do? They wanted to get as far away from Jesus as possible. We'll, we'll, we'll understand this in just a little bit in verse 33 here. It says, and then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, you understand in terms of what is happening here, this is very different than the reception that Jesus had on the western side of the Jordan River. What is happening here? For one thing, their livelihood is completely wiped out. 
What happened to all those pigs that they were raising? They were killed, okay? And because of this, what do they want Jesus to do? They want him to leave. Which are they more concerned for? The pigs or the demon-possessed people? They're more concerned about the pigs, right? Then they're more concerned about their livelihood than these demon-possessed people. By the way, Jesus, in every single case that we see in the previous part of this chapter, he stays in the region and he heals people. In this place here, only the demon-possessed people are healed and no one else. Why? Because they asked Jesus to leave. They want Jesus to leave. Now, we find out in other Gospels that, that these would have been Jews that were living on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And of course, being pigs, Jews weren't even allowed to raise pigs. Jews weren't allowed to eat pigs. Why are Jews raising pigs in the first place? Because they're selling it to the Gentiles because they're living on that side of the Jordan River. They're selling these pigs to the Gentiles. They're making a profit off the pigs. They're making a business off of something that they themselves aren't allowed to eat, but they're selling it to the Gentiles on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so because of this, which do they prefer? The demon-possessed people that are healed or the pigs that they were raising? that weren't even kosher, that weren't even clean. You understand what we do all the time? And we're, again, this word hypocrite comes up a lot in the book of Matthew. In fact, it's quoted 15 times. Do you understand that we can be very similar in how we act and how we treat people? The, the, the people that walk in and we immediately judge them by their outer appearance where we immediately judge people just on that first glance rather than seeing the transforming power in the people that come through the door. Because does Jesus transform lives? E even as we see here, these demon-possessed men that were violent, and did Jesus make them whole again with a single word? And can he do the same today, by the way? Is Jesus just as powerful today as when he walked the earth? In fact, the privilege is that we, when we get to the end of the book of Matthew, that we even have the privilege of knowing that he is with us wherever we go. That he lives in us. And that same power lives in us as well. So next week, we'll pick it up. By the way, if you read ahead, if you, you do the homework, just read ahead chapter nine there. And again, like I always recommend, just read it once, once a day, read chapter nine. You're going to be introduced to Matthew. You're, the author of the book is in the next chapter. Okay. And, and, and when you read about how Matthew comes to following Jesus, it, it, it really gives flavor to the book, why the book was written the way that it was written. Okay. So we'll get to see that next week. And so father, as we approach you tonight, Lord, as we come to a close of another chapter here in the book of Matthew. And let it not just be one of these things where we, we segment the Bible, Lord, please let us never do that. But to understand that in every single verse, in every single chapter, we see your power being proclaimed, your prophetic power being proclaimed to the very people that Jesus is walking in the midst of. And how we have the privilege of being Christians, follower of Jesus, that we too have that same power. And Lord, help us never to limit you. Help us never to limit you to a, you can't do that now, or, or this isn't the time to do it, or whatever it may be. Or please forgive us for limiting you. But instead, help us to have that faith knowing that your power is just as relevant as when you walk to this earth. You do it in even greater ways. You forgive sin. You bore our iniquity. You took away our transgressions, diseases that were 
They're even greater than leprosy or paralysis or all these things that we've been reading about in this section there, where sin that causes not just death, but eternal separation from God and how you remove that from our lives so that when we do die, it's no longer a separation, but now a being united with Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross for us. And so, Lord, I ask that you speak to each and every single person here. If there's anyone that doesn't know you personally, that doesn't know your redemptive power, that doesn't know what you did for them, that they can come even tonight and know you personally, just by walking forward and asking that question, how can I know Jesus Christ personally as my Savior, my Lord? So, Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family, that you would really help us to be those examples in a dying world, a world seeking for hope, especially now with all the signs that we see, all the things that we see around the world. Lord, help us to be your light. Help us to be your examples to those around us, Lord. Lord, bless these, my friends and my family. Use us for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.